0: Thank you, brother. Turn
1: with me in your Bibles to the drama in the wilderness. The drama. Numbers chapter 5. I want to introduce you to a concept, a legal concept here. Y'all are familiar with the idea of trial by jury, right? trial by jury. It's a very American, rah-rah thing. We love trial by jury. And, uh, and well, we should. I believe it's based on biblical concepts. There are, there's also such a thing as a bench trial, where the only one deciding your guilt or innocence is the judge that's hearing it. So we have both those things in our concept, in our society, quite a bit. In, uh, in ancient days, though, there was another means of trial that was in, it wasn't bench trial or trial by jury, but it was called a trial by ordeal. Now, you've probably heard of this popular culture. You've heard about the witch trials and the way they used to determine whether you were guilty or innocent of being a witch. They would, uh, oftentimes, they'd throw you in a, in a vat of cold water, a deep vat of cold water, and if you sunk to the bottom, that meant you were innocent of being a witch. Of course, that's the good news. Bad news is you've drowned. But if you were spat out by the water, you didn't sink. That meant you were made of wood, and thus a witch, and you were, and you were put to death. Uh, yeah. Uh, there were other things like this. There was a. There was a trial by ordeal that was, commonly used, where they would, where they would say, uh, "We've got this item here, and if you retrieve this item out of this pot, you are innocent." Of course, the water that you had to reach through was boiling. And so, if you could reach through this boiling water and pull out this item and not be injured, that meant you were innocent. Or if you carried this red-hot iron a certain distance and came out unharmed, that meant you were innocent. If you were harmed, you were guilty, and so you, whatever. All right, we all understand that's kind of, that ain't right. <laughs> Frankly, the unjust thing that we recognize there is the only way you're going to make it through is if some kind of miracle happens. It requires a miracle for you to be found innocent in those sorts of trials by ordeal. Now, we're coming to a place in the scripture right here, beginning in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 11, where what we have is a trial by ordeal. And in all my study of the Word of God, I believe this is the only place we have this. It's the only law of its kind. It's a strange law. Let's just admit it. It leaves us with maybe more questions than it answers. Of course, it's my job to try to ask and answer those questions. But as we read through this, it's kind of going to be normal for us to ask questions like, Why does this law only go in one direction? It talks about a jealous husband bringing a wife to a trial by ordeal. What's the wife supposed to do? Can the wife not bring the husband? And why why does it just seem to go in this one direction? Another question might be, why is there no penalty if the husband turns out to be wrong and the wife is innocent? It's going to say that right at the very end. No penalty for the guy. Well, is that fair? Why is there only one trial by ordeal in the whole law of God? I mean, if God is willing right here to miraculously show us who is guilty and who is innocent, why not just do that all over with like every crime? But this is the only one where he does this. I think that's a legitimate question. Another legitimate question is, (laughs) why does it show up right here? It's kind of a strange place to my thinking it is. And I want to calm you right away before we read this interesting and strange piece of scripture. I want to calm your mind right away. I think there are great answers to all those questions. There are answers that show us a God who cares about the weak, cares about the poor, cares about the oppressed, cares about those who lack the power to defend themselves. So with that in mind, let's walk through it. Beginning in verse 11, make sure we know exactly what it's saying. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh in the original, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act... If a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. Okay, so what's the what's the situation that triggers this law and makes it happen? Jealousy. The guy freaking out. Whether he's right or wrong, he's freaking out. Now, in my short experience as a pastor. I have dealt with some couples where the issue was one or both of them was convinced that the other one was not being faithful. And whether they were or not wasn't even really the issue. The thing that was destroying their household was this spirit of jealousy and in instances where I was convinced the guy was actually more unfaithful than the wife was, and yet he's the one overcome with the spirit of jealousy, man, that's a marriage that is slowly, maybe even not so slowly, being torn apart, and it will not survive. A spirit of jealousy in your marriage relationship will destroy your marriage. I guarantee it. Guaranteed. Because if I'm thinking... That Joyce is doing bad things when I'm not there. Doesn't matter if she is or not. Right? There's a sense in which perception is reality. Okay? So here's the trigger. A guy who is uh, bound up in this jealous spirit and now it's causing problems in his household, he's supposed to then take his wife to the priest. Okay, let's keep reading at verse 15. The man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. That works out to about two quarts of grain. He shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it. Let's stop right there and mention this for a little while. So he's just bringing the bare grain. But if we were to investigate this further, I'm going to give you some references here. We won't spend a lot of time going back and forth in the scripture, but... Look these up, especially if you're interested. In Leviticus chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, it says that when a grain offering is brought, this is an offering of thanksgiving. It's an offering that you give just because you feel like expressing how thankful you are to God. It's an act of worship in that way. So you bring this offering of grain and... You do not bring it bare. You're pouring olive oil on it, and you've got frankincense in there with it, not burning, but it's there so that when pieces of it do burn, it will smell, you know, really great. Okay? So the oil and the frankincense to the Hebrew mind, to the person who is living in that day listen, if there's a zombie apocalypse and you go into the grocery store to try to find food, and all that's left is a bottle of olive oil, that ain't helping you very much. Amen. You'd rather find a can of condensed milk or find cans of vegetables or something like that. There are certain things that you need before you can use these other things. Now, once you've got all the food you need, few things are finer than a nice bottle of EVOO. (laughs) That's good stuff. And in the ancient world, you could grow a crop of bread in one growing season and feed your family. But making some olive oil, that takes some time. It takes some care. And it takes living in a land that has not been uh, hampered or demolished by warfare and stuff like that. So when the ancient Jews had olive oil, what was that a symbol of? God's protection and prosperity over a long period of time. And so when you're pouring olive oil on your sacrifice, what are you saying? Say, man, look how good God has been to me. Amen. And when you're burning frankincense on there, that's the same way. Frankincense is a luxury item. You don't need it in a zombie apocalypse. It's just going to make the zombie smell you and all that. So. Frankincense is is another luxury item, but it was commanded in the worship of God. And both oil and frankincense then represent God's blessing on you and what you're doing. And then it's kind of telling, isn't it? Oil also, of course, we know from the reading the whole Bible, oil is very symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Another long-term blessing of peace. So it's very telling when the man brings his wife and she brings her grain offering. It says specifically, do not pour oil on this. Do not put frankincense with this because, yes, this is an allowable thing. It's going to wind up being a good thing. But listen, God may not be in this. What you husband are doing to your wife in this moment, God may have nothing to do with this. It's just the spirit of jealousy that's inflaming your brain. We're about to find out whether or not God is in this. You understand that? And this is not a happy situation. If you're bringing your grain offering with oil and frankincense, that's happy. That's a good time. Trumpets are playing and you got your tambourines and everybody's happy at the temple. Grain offerings are being brought. But this one, you bring this and nobody's saying a thing. It's a sad thing. It's sad just to get to this point, amen, where the husband is so inflamed with jealousy that it threatens his whole family. Okay, let's keep reading. It's a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, Y'all know they had holy water in the Old Testament? It wasn't like what the Catholics call holy water. It was a much different thing. There were two places that scholars think maybe they got this holy water from. One will eventually get there in Numbers chapter 19, verse 17. And it talks about taking the ashes from a burnt offering and placing it in water. And that becomes holy water that is used to sprinkle things and call them clean. It becomes a water of cleansing another uh, possibility is that he's just getting water out of the laver that's in front of the tabernacle where the priests are washing themselves and it's a holy set apart thing so he's got this earthenware vessel full of this holy water and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water well that's obviously poisonous right dust and water that's obviously nobody wants to be drinking no there's nothing wrong with that I remember when I was a little kid and we moved out to the country out here north of town and we had a well guy come and drill a well and he struck water 200 gallons per minute at 40 feet we were real impressed at what a great well that was and he he was shooting water out of the well as soon as he dug it and we would get our little styrofoam cups and grab up some water and you get this water in your cup, and it's, it's totally brown. It's like, it's total mud. I see all you country people going, yeah, that's the way it is. Now, you can take that water and set it aside and come back later, and all that stuff will settle to the bottom. But y'all know what we did. We drank it anyway. And it was the best water in the whole world. You know how that works. So a little bit of dust in the water, that's not going to hurt anybody. Verse 18, the priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. So she is standing there at the tabernacle facing toward the Ark of the Covenant and They loose her hair, which means they would have taken whatever head covering off and however she's got her hair tied up, now it's loosed. Let me tell you something, that was not a way of honoring her. That was a way of humiliating her. Women in that day wanted to have their heads covered. Why? Because slaves and prostitutes walked around without their heads covered. And back in the ancient world, ancient Corinth, for example, in the, in the first century, if you were walking down the street and you saw a woman walking without a covering on her head, it was legally allowed for you to take that woman and rape her. There was zero penalty for this. Zero. So for a woman to be forcibly They're taking the head covering off and they're loosening her head. This is not granting her some kind of elevated status. It's a humiliation being done. You understand that? Now, this doesn't have to do with what we're doing here. But then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we start talking about head coverings. One bad interpretation that has dominated the Christian church for a long time is the idea that what was going on in Corinth was that women who walked in with head coverings once they got into church, what they were wanting to do is take that off and just let it flow free as a way of flouting their husband's authority and saying, I'm not under his authority, I've got my own authority and I don't need to be covered. Listen, there's not a woman in the ancient world that would have wanted to do that. The head covering was a sign of protection. You can rape the woman without the head covering. You'll be put to death for raping the one with the head covering. You think women are coming to church and saying, shoo, glad I can take this off. (laughs) But that's the way the church has seen that passage. And so the whole idea about head coverings, we think what the problem is, is a bunch of covered women wanting to uncover The truth is, and the one that's more accurate with the culture of the day, including what we see here, is that you had slave girls who had been converted to Christ coming into the Christian assembly, and now once they're no longer in public, they're wanting to put on a covering just because it's more honorable. Right? Because they know that in Christ, yes, you are a slave physically, but Christ has set you free. And so you've got slave girls coming into the assembly, and now that they're here and they're with family, they're wanting to put on a covering like all the other women. And what you had instead was men saying, no, you're a slave. You don't get to wear a head covering. We've got it completely reversed as, a church, as Christianity. I'm convinced Christianity has had this wrong for a very long time. The covering was not a sign, to putting away the covering was not a sign that you're grabbing at Authority that isn't yours. It's a sign of getting rid of the authority that you have with the covering. All right, that sermon was totally for free. (laughs) (laughs) But I just want to point out here that you've got the grain coming. No oil, no frankincense. It's not a happy occasion. And now here is this woman who may be innocent, and she's being subjected to a little bit of public humiliation. This is not a happy occasion. Nobody should be cheering to see these sorts of things happening. Okay, verse 19, the priest shall have her take an oath and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, Yahweh make you a curse and an oath among your people, by Yahweh's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So what are we doing here? We're now calling upon God to be the witness. In a trial by jury, you're going to bring evidences and witnesses. Now we're calling on God to be a witness. The husband hasn't seen her commit adultery, but if she has, we know that God has seen it. Right, and so that's what we're doing. We're invoking the presence of God. She is calling the oath upon herself. Now, in those trial by ordeals that we talked about, remember, a miracle had to happen for you to survive that trial by ordeal. Here, it's completely reversed, as you will see. Here, the miracle has to take place to get the woman found guilty. Because there's nothing in the water, there's nothing natural that's going to make her abdomen swell and her thigh waste away. Nothing natural in the water is going to do that. We're calling on God's supernatural power. So the miracle will not, is not meant to, or the only thing that needs miracle power is her guilt. If she's innocent, she'll be totally fine. She doesn't need a miracle to break in on her behalf. Verse 23, the priest shall then write these curses on a scroll and he shall wash them into the water of bitterness. We've talked about this. They didn't have paper and they didn't have modern ink. They were writing on things like dried animal skins and vellum, maybe something like that. Very smooth surfaces. And they didn't have ink. They had, or not like we think of it, they had pigments made of minerals and stuff like that. Where they would write on the surface of this of this parchment or whatever it was but to really make it set you would then have to put some kind of dust or something on it to firm up those letters and keep them there because if you didn't do that then you could just take a you could just take a wipe and wipe those wipe that writing right off which is what's being talked about here the priest writes the curse on the scroll then he wipes it off and puts so that that those minerals, those natural pigments, find their way into the water. Oh, well, that'll kill her. No, it's not going to kill her. It's it's all natural stuff that they're finding in the desert. There's nothing poisonous in any of this. But it's the symbolically, what is she saying? Symbolically, she's agreeing to the curse the same way that she just did verbally. The curse is now in the water and I'm going to drink it. Okay. Verse 25, the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and afterward he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse shall go into her. And cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. Interestingly, the Bible commentator John Gill, who does, he's great in the Old Testament because he takes the time to research what all the ancient Jews thought about these things. And in this passage, what he says was that the ancient Jews, they believed that this swelling of the abdomen and the uh, diminishing of the thigh was very rapid we think of it as being like a sickness or something that she gets no they're saying drinks it and boom and, right and in fact swelling so much some of the Jews said swelling so much that she burst open and and died then okay so we're talking about something miraculous and strange and weirdly supernatural going on here okay Verse 28, if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man shall be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Okay, so let's look at these questions that I mentioned before. Why is it that this law only goes in one direction? Why is it not a law that says if the spirit of jealousy comes over a husband or a wife? That doesn't seem right, does it? Uh, Let me tell you. The reason is because the man in that day had a lot more options than the wife did. If a man got jealous of his wife back in this society, he could divorce her, he could put her away, or he could just marry another woman. He could get another wife or a concubine. So the man had some options that the woman didn't have. And I don't know if you understand, but in this ancient society, if a woman got divorced and was put away and could not return to her father's household or anything like that, that's practically a slow sentence of death upon her. It's certainly a sentence of lifelong poverty. It's certainly a sentence of pushing her to the very edges of the society. Certainly it is. So if the woman gets divorced, unless she's got something to fall back on, she's in real trouble at that point. The man is not in that situation. So that is part of what's going on here. The man has more options The woman doesn't have options. And what I'm saying is that this points in the direction of the purpose of this law. Why is there no penalty if the dude is wrong? They go through all of this. The woman drinks the water. She's been saying for months, I haven't done a darn thing. You're a crazy man. Turns out he is a crazy man. She hasn't done anything. And she's fine. Why does the guy then go free? Right, he's not totally free. He's just legally free, right? There won't be any extra punishment on him. If you didn't hear Cheyenne, she suggested he's still gotta live with some guilt and stuff over that. Well, also because most of the guys that are jealous and they're sure their wife is cheating on them, if you ask them for evidence, they don't really have any. So they know There's a possibility that they're wrong. So if everybody knows that the law is whoever loses this legal duel gets punished, how many guys are then going to take their wives? He has no evidence. If he had evidence, he could bring that to the actual legal system. He has no evidence. He has no witnesses. If he's wrong, he has the prospect of being punished. So that's going to deter him from making use of this law. You see how that would work? If he knows I can do this and it won't come back on me, he's going to be more willing to go through the process if he's really inflamed with this jealousy. I think what that means is God wants him. If he is... He can't, he's unreasonable. He can't be talked down. She can't talk him down. Nothing she says is working and his mind is still on fire with this jealousy. God wants a resolution to that. And so he would, have, he would rather have him take his wife to go through this he would rather have that happen and have her be found either guilty or innocent. He would rather have that than have them just be together in this situation of stalemate. Where she's being accused and she's being called names and, she, and he's mistreating her based on crimes that she may not have committed. And their, their whole family, their whole situation is just slowly being torn apart. God would have there be a resolution. Do you see how that protects who? It protects the wife. Listen, God doesn't want the law to be decided based on who has money or who has power. In fact, he warns against that all over the place. But I'll tell you what, God really is on the side of some. He's on the side of widows, orphans, strangers, the poor, he's on the side of people who do not have the natural ability to protect themselves. And in fact, we mentioned it last time we were together. The truth is that the law repeatedly says, if you oppress any of these people in this weak category, if you oppress them or you stand by and let them be oppressed without opening your freaking mouths and saying something about it, if you stand by and let that happen, the promise of God is that the same sort of oppression that is happening to them, he will make sure it happens to you. If you let this government treat people bad based on their inability to really fight or do anything about it, that same government is coming after you. That's the promise of God. He says it this way. If you oppress them and they cry out to me at all, I'm coming for you. Now you and I have problems. So yes, the law is supposed to be decided evenly, the law's not supposed to favor one group or another, but rest assured, God thinks that the law should be on the side of the weak until it's proven that they've really done something wrong. Right? Innocent until proven guilty. Where does that stuff come from? From the Word of God. Pagan courts didn't have innocent until proven guilty. What do they have? Guilty until proven innocent. Right. And during the Protestant Reformation and the, the time around it, we might get to this. Oh, we missed it in Sunday school. It didn't mention it very much. But the, the Inquisition, if you got accused of being a heretic by the Catholic Inquisition, it was a guilty until proven innocent sort of situation. How do you prove yourself innocent? How do you prove a negative? Yeah, it's kind of hard to get that done. Right. So why is there no penalty to make sure the law is used if it's needed? And this will help who? The wife. Ultimately, she's the one who's in trouble. Now, another question might come about, and it's this, why why is there only one trial by ordeal? Right here God's proving he's willing to be that witness and that judge and to show up and say, yes, this one's guilty. Why not just do that all over? Because God created men, male and female, right at the beginning. And sent them out with the hopes that they would find a way to survive. Is that what the scripture says? God created man, male and female, with the intention that they would, what? take dominion over all the things that God has made. By the way, I think that includes outer space. (laughs) That doesn't justify every bit of science fiction, but I believe it includes outer space. We're supposed to take dominion. And I think what that means is Yes, God is there as a backstop for us. If we get in a bind and things in the creative world really begin to overwhelm us and now we don't have power, God invites us to come to him and pray for miracles, right? We do that all the time in here. We're praying for healing and stuff like that. God wants us to be ready and quick to pray, but the truth is God wants us to go out and take dominion the things that used to overwhelm humanity, in a lot of cases, they don't overwhelm humanity anymore. I've got a cousin, for instance, who was born, he was a little baby, and without being too indelicate indelicate about it in this setting, not all the plumbing on the inside was hooked up the way it should be. Large intestine didn't empty the way it was supposed to in this little tiny baby. A hundred years ago, That's a baby that is going to spend a week of living with excruciating pain and be called home just 100 years ago if God didn't intervene with a miracle. But now in just a little bit of time, uh, this cousin of mine was born. They figured it out right away. He went into surgery. Now this guy's the strongest, healthiest dude you'd ever want to meet. Just got married, living a productive life. Do you hear what I'm saying here? God is there. If you need a miracle, God is there. And I've seen him perform miracles in answer to prayer. But God wants you as an image bearer to go out and take dominion. You should not continue as a human race. We should not continue to be overwhelmed by all the same things that have always overwhelmed us. So in the case of determining justice and good and evil and deciding who's right and who's wrong, we are supposed to get better at that. And so the rest of the law gives us guidelines for like how to deal with witnesses, how to spot a false witness, how to deal with evidence, what to do in all these different situations. Why? Because God wants you and I to go out and take dominion. Not merely survive, but take dominion. Be in charge. Does that make sense? The last uh, thought that I wanted to give you, please bear with me. We did start a little bit late, so I'm not really running. (laughs) It was all that fellowship and stuff. The last question that I proposed is, why is this right here? It's the law, hopefully by now we kind of understand what it's for and what its purpose was and intricacies like that. We kind of get that. But why is it right here? I'm thinking as a guy who plans on preaching through numbers, why is it right here? Why not in in all the laws that were given in Exodus and all the laws that were given in Leviticus? Why does God wait till right here? At the beginning of the drama in the wilderness, why does God put this right here? My suggestion to you is because this is what the book of Numbers is about. What? What do we see in the book of Numbers? 40 years of God's covenanted bride being tested in the wilderness. 40 years worth of a trial by ordeal. Would she remain faithful? Would she continue to carry her idols with her? Which way would she go? Would she commit spiritual adultery over and over and over and over again, or would she remain pure? Well, I won't spoil it for you. (laughs) But that's what's going on here. That's what's going on in the whole book of Numbers. One long trial by ordeal. Okay, I have to spoil it for you. Turns out Israel... Is an unfaithful wife. And that becomes evident just in her trials. Well, that's terrible, Pastor. It is. Let me tell you about another trial by ordeal that happens later, though. This unfaithful bride takes Jesus before the authorities and says, this man does not deserve to live. He's a rabble rouser and a rebel. He claims to be a king greater than Caesar. He deserves to die. And what happened to him? They said, okay, we're going to, here's what we're going to do. We're going to nail you to a cross until we're sure you're good and dead. We're going to take you out and mummify your body. We're going to bury you in a tomb made of rock we're going to roll the biggest stone you ever saw in front of the mouth of that tomb and then we'll see what happens. Well, we saw what happened. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Crucifixion, burial, stuck in the tomb, trial by ordeal. And when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that was God breaking in with a miracle to say this one is righteous amen Amen. you see how all this stuff works first timothy in fact says that he who was manifest in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit i'm convinced that's talking about the spirit's power in the resurrection and when the new testament uses words like justified and vindicated you know what those are those are courtroom terms they're the same as when we talk about being found not guilty in a trial or something like that. When that says that Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh, was then vindicated in the Spirit at his resurrection. That's saying that God's voice should be heard in that saying, here is the only truly innocent one. This is the righteous one. And that unfaithful bride that uh, that brought him to the authorities for this trial by ordeal. Now there's some hell to pay, which happened then in AD 70, and yet God's grace continued. And even those jealous ones who couldn't stand him, and so they made him go through this trial by ordeal, even multitudes of them became Christian believers and escaped the punishment that was really theirs. Man, how good is God? God. So, what we're going to see as we walk through Numbers is one extended 40 year long trial by ordeal. And we're going to see the unfaithful wife say, No, no, I'm, I'm totally fine. I'm, nothing wrong with me. She's going to show herself to have been wrong. She's going to prove her own unfaithfulness. That's kind of cool, right? You ever thought of the book of Numbers like that? That's, uh, that's what nobody's ever preached to. It. I'm the only guy ever that's ever preached. No, not really. Anyway, come back. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll be in chapter six and we'll find another kind of strange series of laws dealing with the Nazarites and the Nazarite vow. That'll be interesting. So join us there. If you have questions or comments, be sure you get those taken care of and, and come. I'm happy to talk to you about these things. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask your blessing on it all. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.